The Elevation with Stephen Furtick podcast was created with you in mind. This is a podcast for those feeling discouraged or needing guidance from God. Together in this podcast, we'll dive deep into scripture, uncover the powerful truths that will help you rise above your limitations and embrace your full potential. We're here to equip you with the tools you need to conquer life's challenges. Listen to Elevation with Stephen Furtick every Sunday and Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I used to have so many men. How this beguiling woman in her 50s... She looked like a million bucks. ...scams a bunch of famous athletes out of untold fortunes... Nearly $10 million was all gone. It's just unbelievable. Hide your money in your old rich men, because <laughs> she is on the prowl. Listen to Queen of the Con, Season 5, The Athlete Whisperer, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart for a year, and what a year it has been. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Make Woke AF Daily your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. You and Me Both is a production of iHeartRadio. I'm Hillary Clinton, and this is You and Me Both. You know, we've heard from a lot of amazing people on this podcast, like Kamala Harris and Amanda Gorman and Nancy Pelosi and Stacey Abrams and Maria Ressa, Tan France, Jose Andreas, and that's just to name a few. But I know all of these people would be quick to tell you that no one does great things alone. We need friends, spouses, partners, siblings, colleagues, and others we can turn to for support who will keep us motivated and hold us accountable. So on today's episode, we're celebrating partnerships. I'll be talking to Lieutenant Governor and Second Lady of Pennsylvania, John and Giselle Fetterman about their shared commitment to public service. And I'll be talking to Jorge and Ileana Valdez, a brother-sister team who found a creative new way to help thousands of college students find friendships and more while campuses are shut down. But first, I'm talking to Ami Natuso and Ann Friedman, hosts of the beloved podcast, Call Your Girlfriend, and now best-selling authors about friendship. Ami Natuso and Ann Friedman are each extraordinary women in their own right. Last July, they released their book, Big Friendship, How We Keep Each Other Close, <laughs> which is really a love letter to friendship, and a guide for people who want to be better friends. In a time when we've been isolated from our friends, this book sure resonated with me, and I was delighted to welcome them to the podcast. I'm just so excited to talk to both of you, and it's particularly 
poignant to me because in the last year I've lost two really, really good friends and I miss them all the time. I mean, every day I want to talk to one or the other about what's going on or, you know, what they're thinking or how they're managing. And I almost have to catch myself because, you know, I can't talk to them. But when you think about friendship and the two of you just really have delved into it, what are some of your favorite examples of friendship in popular culture? Oh, first, I just want to say I'm so sorry for your loss. Like, hearing that is, it's so big and it's so profound, you know? I think the the reason Anne and I are so invested in our friendship and in friendship in general, I think, is because culturally, we haven't made space to to tell people that, you know, when your friend dies, that is a significant loss in your life and that we should treat it that way, you know, and you should have time for bereavement and you should have people check in on you. So that is, you know, that's a lot to hear. And I'm so sorry you were dealing with that. To your question about friendship and popular culture, I think that pop culture for me has always been where the idealized version of friendship was. I was an obsessive Mary Tyler Moore uh, show <laughs> watcher as a kid. And when, and when I was learning English, it was a show that meant so much to me. And so like that friendship is iconic to me. I think, um, you know, in the book, we write a lot about Oprah and Gail. And while that is not a fictional account of friendship, I think that two very real women sharing how invested they are in each other, that is something that had, it has left a lasting impression on my life. How about you, Anne? Well, and when we talk about complex portrayals of friendship that, you know, don't just show the idealized good stuff, but show everything that it can mean to be in someone's life this way. I think a lot of those examples come from fiction. We both um, love Toni Morrison's Sula. And speaking of a lifelong, powerful, profound entanglement, <laughs> so to speak, that book really gets at some of the things I think we were hoping to write about in the sense that a friendship can be Lots of things, not just always affirming and joyful, but complex and difficult. You know, when you make friends as an adult, that's a different kind of entry into friendship. I think about how you two met watching, what, the premiere of Gossip Girl, right? The prom episode, let me tell you, <laughs> was riveting stuff. I just, I love the, the image of it. But you became friends as adults. And I think that's a really significant event because for so many people, you know, that's hard for them. You know, I think that Anne and I were both people that we were so aware that so much of our social life when we were young was really organized around our parents. That is just the truth of any young person. You meet people because you're in the same boat as them. And to some extent, that is also true in college. And I think that, you know, once you step out into the real world, you have this opportunity to just be yourself and tell your story to people who, you know, don't have like a preconceived notion of who you are. And you get to try out almost like a new identity where you're like, this is who I am when the world is not negotiating me through my mom and dad or my academic achievements or whatever. And so I think that, like, when we met, it was very much a phase of life where, you know, we lived in D.C., such a transient kind of city. But we had a lot of room in our life to make a new friend because we were trying to figure out, who am I going to be in the world? Like, who do I want to be when I'm, like, an older, more established person? And so when I think about people who don't want to, you know, they think that they don't have the capacity to make friends— as adults, it makes me really sad because I think that the opportunity you have every time you make a friend as an adult, particularly like every decade of adulthood, is that you get to be a new person in someone's life and you get to learn about yourself in a new context. And so I just really hope that we are people who are open to that in every season of life. Amen. Oh, it, <laughs> it's so true that part of our story is about meeting at this point where we were trying to figure out what the next phase looked like for both of us individually. And when we look back on our admittedly kind of limited experience in adulthood making friends, like hopefully we're both around a long time to make a lot more, we really see that we both have made friends in periods of transition and periods where something is 
shifting in our lives. And we maybe require a new kind of relationship or support to see us into the next phase. And, you know, we're all always changing. And I think friends are a great reminder of that and a great inspiration to change more. You know, when you think about the friends from different phases of your life, it does reflect who you are. But it also, as you both said, reflects who you want to become, because there is a way in which your friendship, especially a close friendship, can be such a stimulant uh, for you having to take steps that might be a little scary or break off a different relationship because you've got the support of a friend when you should have done it even before. So there's just a lot of learning that goes on through friendship. And, you know, when you talk about friendship, you know, you came up with a couple of terms that really resonated with me. One is big friendship. What sets big friendship apart? Is there such a thing as a little friendship? Uh, I love the idea of a little friendship. You're like, a little friendship <laughs> as a treat for you. <laughs> little friendships everywhere, our yeah. next book. Right, exactly. <laughs> That's right. You know, I think that what we were really trying to get at is that the word friend is so nebulous. Friend is anyone from that person that you met one time who did that really nice thing for you to someone that's, you know, they're just in your Facebook feed and you don't remember when you met them. And then, you know, there's the friend like Anne is my friend, someone who I want her to be there on my last day in the world. I want to know that I have a strong, solid relationship with her. And in the Golden Girls version of this, you know, she's there at the nursing home with me. That's the that's the fantasy. Please, you mean on our Hawaiian compound? We are not in the nursing home. <laughs> let's let's construct a better fantasy for this, okay? Thank you, thank you, thank you. But you know, I I think that there so much of the unexpressed feelings of friendship are that is that we don't we're not even precise about what we're talking about here. And so in, um, you know, coining big friendship and in talking about it, we are so laser focused on the kind of friendship that you want to be so deeply rooted in that this person is a huge part of your life. You want the world to know and to recognize that they're a big part of your life. It is a relationship that is mature. It's a relationship that is rooted in the future and that is, um, you know, I think really upends the social script for um, the role that your friends are supposed to have in your life. Like we are, we are so deeply invested, you know, in creating a world where romantic love or, you know, like parent and children bonds are not the only ones that people think make you a whole adult, you know? Yeah. And we think that with big friendship, we are getting a little closer to that world. But I, I have to point out that you two have been very honest about the trials and tribulations of your big friendship. This is the exact reason we wanted to write a book, in fact, that something that encompasses the complexity of friendship as opposed to just the joyful up-on-the-shelf parts of it. And, you know, for us, I think the hardest moments were things that started small, you know, moments of disconnect or miscommunication where one of us felt, you know, maybe dismissed or hurt but didn't say anything in real time. And then some more time passed and something else happened and the, the disconnect kind of compounded until it got to this place where we were really just completely missing each other and also didn't feel safe or comfortable talking about the hard things in our lives individually. And it was complex because we, on the outside, were still hosting a podcast together. We were still extremely functional colleagues. We still had this really deep well of love and respect for each other. But in the kind of emotional day-to-day, -day, our relationship was not great. And I also have to say that friendship is not unique among intimate relationships. You know, it can kind of fall into the same traps, you know, the same ebbs and flows that any other relationship has. Conflict is just part of intimately knowing people, and that's something we wanted to really bring to the conversation about friendship. We're taking a quick break. Stay with us. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals, 
Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm preaching to somebody today who is waiting for God to give you your next step. And you don't know what it is yet. You need God to show you your next step. Because God, I can't stay where I am, like I am, where it is. This isn't going to work. I I have to move on, but I don't know where. A lot of times you'll use it as an excuse. Well, I don't know how. I don't know where. I don't know what. God, if you show me. God, if you tell me. God, no, 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 no. You know enough right now. And if you needed to know more, he would show you. Hey, this is Stephen Furtick. I want to invite you to listen to my podcast, Elevation with Stephen Furtick. I am here to help you for the battles that you face in life, for the times when you feel discouraged, for the times that you need guidance from God. I want to give you the truth of what he says about you to help you rise to your full potential. Listen to Elevation with Stephen Furtick every Sunday and Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your host of TMI. New year, new name, new energy, but... Same old us. Oh, yeah. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. But that's not all. We will also have special guests to add their thoughts on the topics, as well as break down different political issues with local activists in their community. If you like to be informed and to expand your thoughts, listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. I'm Hannah Storm, and my podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, digs deep into the history of professional basketball, along with my own as one of the first female sportscasters. Now let's get you up to speed on what else happened around the NBA today. We talked to all sorts of people I interacted with, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley, and recap iconic moments. Yes, he's got it. Here he comes. Ray rocked the baby to sleep and slam dunk. As well as some of the wild stories behind the scenes. We were like, what? What are we in for? The scoreboard crashes before we even tip a game off. Today, the NBA is a global sports and entertainment giant. Players are multimillionaires and cultural icons. Iguodala to Curry, back to Iguodala, up for the layup. Oh, blocked by James. LeBron James. And these stories are about how we got here, both on and off the court. And what's next? Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart's Outspoken Network for a year, and what a year it has been. Every weekday, I navigate our rapidly changing world alongside our series of fabulous expert guests. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Woke not just to the latest headlines, but also to the collective power we all have. Woke to the need to build community with those around us. Woke to how to avoid burnout and woke to the ways we can all find joy in the madness. Make Woke AF Daily with Danielle Moody your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. And tune in to hear the ways I am working to stay grounded amidst it all. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. You know... I love this poem that you have in the book. You share a few lines of a Pat Parker poem for the white person who wants to know how to be my friend. And then you go on to sort of pick that apart, too, because for people who might not know who you are, which I can't believe anybody actually doesn't, you know, we have a black friend and a white friend. And the two have had to not only navigate business and friendship and their relationship, but also race. Let's, you know, let's be clear. And in this poem, 
I mean, it's so fascinating because, you know, the poem begins with the first thing you do is to forget that I'm Black. Second, you must never forget that I'm Black. So how do you two navigate this dynamic in your friendship? And, you know, as somebody who's been blessed with really strong friendships with Black women for many years, I'm often amazed at the obstacles that they face in their everyday life, which are, you know, just stomach churning. And so how have you two navigate this dynamic? And and Anne, have you ever had to stop and think or, or worried that you're getting it wrong in, you know, trying to be as honest uh, as you possibly can? Oh, have I ever. You know, one reason we love that poem so much is because it really does speak to this duality of, like, what makes friendship powerful is that two people feel connected, right? They they feel a sense of affinity. And at the same time, if it's an interracial friendship, particularly one like ours involving a white friend and a black friend, we do not have parallel experiences in this world. And, you know, that dynamic that you're talking about of, you know, really coming to a deeper understanding of what it means to be a black woman in the United States of America through your friendship with Black women is something that I fully relate to. You know, it's one thing to kind of read statistics or read the news, and it's another when a person you love says, like, this is what's going on with me, and like, this is how this plays out in my day to day life. And so that is something that we really write about as not an equal experience for both people in the friendship. You know, I mean, I can tell you that I feel deeply grateful for having my world expanded and having more knowledge of what it's like for people who are not, you know, of my race in this country. But I also recognize that that comes at a really painful cost for friends like Aminatu. Um, And that conversation and that kind of labor to explain her experience of the world in a way that, you know, I get to have a learning experience just has a different toll. And being able to hold those things as joint truths is not all that different from holding the joint truths of <laughs> you must forget I'm Black and you must never forget I'm Black. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, and to your point about um, are these things I think about, you know, I think I have been a lot better at the first part of that than the second part of it. You know, I think a sort of constant vigilance and work and conversation is required for me, a white person who is raised and steeped in white culture. <laughs> to be more actionable and accountable when it comes to not forgetting that people I love are Black and have this experience in the world. And from your perspective, Aminatu, as one half of this very powerful, big friendship, how have you navigated race? Or has it been just the continuity of your life having to navigate it? (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, as you know, I'm Black. So I... um, (laughs) You know, for me, it's not um, having conversations about race is not something that I am more attuned to when, you know, something terribly racist happens on the news. And so, you know, even just that experience, I think, was was something that I was just like not fully aware of that. I was like, oh, yeah, I talk about race all the time because I'm black and I don't have the choice to not. But realizing that, you know, for a lot of my white friends, this is like they're tuning in now because the news says they should tune in or because there has been an incident, you know, and and even in my friendship with Anne, where we are two people who are very justice minded and we are people who care a lot about living in a world that is fair and equitable, We've been great about talking about, you know, racism as it happens in the world, but understanding that um, we also needed to talk about how it was affecting our own friendship, you know, that required a different kind of work. And Anne is correct that the toll is the toll is so very different. You know, when usually in intimate relationships with white people, I have noticed, and um, you know, the critic Wesley Morris told us this um, for the book that. Usually if a conversation about race is happening, uh, it's not because the white person is bringing it up. And that is just like one tiny example of, you know, the kind of repetitive work that you have to do all the time. And I think, you know, Anne and I are also not naive. Like racism is bigger than our friendship. We love each other a lot and we, we want to be there for each other. But this is what we mean when we talk about systems that oppress people. And so... Um, you know, she is right. It requires a nimbleness and it requires constant vigilance, you know, for for us. And I have to say that, you know, for people who say that they struggle with this, I would really like push them 
to think about all of the other ways that they can be different in their relationships. You know, for white women, I'm like, if you are married to a man, I'm not saying that it's apples to oranges, but I think that you you can understand how you can deeply love someone who also gets on your last nerve about something <laughs> that deeply affects your life, you know, and that is true for straight people who are friends with not straight people. And it's true. It's true in in all of these ways. And I think that having a compassion for people who are different and having the ability to be the one that says, hey, I understand that my experience is very different than yours. And I want to keep checking in on that. And I want to keep bringing that up because the world is very cruel to a lot of different kinds of people. And I think that if you are saying that you are friends with people, that is something that you need to acknowledge from the jump. And it's something that you really have to be invested in, um, you know, in being part of the conversation. Otherwise, your relationship will never go deeper than that. You know, I started by talking about two friends that I lost this past year. One, a friend since sixth grade, someone who uh, I was in her wedding, she was in my wedding. You know, we we were in constant touch with each other. We just had, you know, one of those incredible friendships where we knew what each other was thinking at the same time and could kind of do the old uh, side eye about what we're hearing or seeing. It was one of the great joys of my life. And my other friend was an adult-made friend who I met in the 90s, had a chance to work with in a number of capacities, was somebody whose uh, opinion I valued so much, who literally could and would tell me anything, one of those friends that everybody needs. Uh, so I've thought a lot about friendship. And knowing what real friendships have been in my life and knowing how difficult it is sometimes for people to form them to maintain them, especially with everything else going on in their lives and in the world around them. I wanted to talk to the two of you because you've been you know, so important in modeling what it means to be a friend. You have fought for your friendship. You have committed to your friendship. And I find that really inspiring. Oh, I'm getting so emotional and I'm really going to try not to cry. But I think that hearing you articulate everything that you said about your friends who are gone, like that is why it matters. You know, this idea that um, you can love people so deeply and they can mean so much to you. You know, I think that as a society, we are not great at reinforcing that those people can be your friends. And when I hear you say that, I... I'm just reminded again and again that we we need people need to know that the greatest loves of your life can be your friends and the reason that it's worth fighting for your relationships particularly your friendships is because you know we are not all going to be here and if you are lucky you will pass on in the same season of life but that is not a reality for everyone and I think feeling that you really gave it your all and that you feel not unresolved about how you expressed your love to someone that meant so much to you. You know, I, just, I, I keep coming back to that over and over again. It's why this is so important. It's true. And we also owe a great debt to you in terms of feeling like we can be honest and open about these kinds of things. And um, we're very aware that we did not like spring from nothing. <laughs> you know, we come from, uh, you know, amazing examples in, you know, LGBTQ scholarship and in, you know, feminist movements and, you know, examples of women in politics and business and in all these other areas that really enable us to have the conversations that we want to have now. And so that's one reason why it's so powerful to hear you say that, because we are also very grateful. Thank you, my friends. I am so delighted to talk to you both. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you. Ami Natu and Anne's book is called Big Friendship, How We Keep Each Other Close. And you can hear them every week on their podcast, Call Your Girlfriend. I first met John and Giselle Fetterman when I was on the campaign trail in 2016. I was struck by their shared commitment to public service and by how much fun they have together. As Lieutenant Governor and Second Lady of Pennsylvania, 
They've spurred each other on when it comes to getting things done for their community and advocating for people who really need somebody in their corner. They live in Braddock, Pennsylvania, where John was mayor for 13 years. And if working and homeschooling their three children wasn't enough, recently their lives got even busier when John announced that he's running to be the next U.S. Senator from Pennsylvania. I really was looking forward to talking to them together for this podcast. Well, let me just welcome you to this show. I'm so excited to talk with both uh, John and Giselle. And we know everybody's been, you know, kind of COVID isolated. Just give our listeners a little insight into managing three kids while you both stay so busy and launching political campaigns and fulfilling your duties uh, as lieutenant governor of Pennsylvania. You know, we have a six-year-old, a nine-year-old, and an 11-year-old. 12-year-olds. Oh, he just turned 12. 12. Oh, boy. (laughs) It's fun. It's overwhelming. I know that, you know, we're going to look back and be grateful for all this time that we had together. I Mm -hmm. mean, at times, I hide in the closet for a little bit. Yeah, 100%. Well, how did the two of you meet? I'm I'm just going to say this, that she's going to tell the story (laughs) to to embarrass me. It's a very romantic story. I hope everyone has tissues. Uh, So at the time, (laughs) I was working out of Newark, New Jersey in food justice and food access. I'm a nutritionist by trade. And I was at a retreat, and I read this article about this community of Braddock. And they talked about the history of this incredibly rich community, Andrew Carnegie's first steel mill, big contributions to this country. And then it was kind of left behind. And that was really upsetting to me. It just felt wrong. And I loved the Brooklyn Bridge. When I lived in New York, I just loved this bridge. I thought it was magnificent. And I learned that the steel that built the Brooklyn Bridge came from Braddock. Ah, And, you know, Brazilians, we believe in signs. And I said, this is a sign. (laughs) So I wrote a letter to the borough and I shared (laughs) the work that I was doing with food justice. And I wanted to visit and learn more and understand how this could happen to a city like this. And the letter ended up with John and he called me. I came to visit, I think, like two months later. Yeah. And then I arrived and he fell madly, <laughs> just madly in love with me. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> and so, that's how it happens. So that's how she tells it. And that, that's obviously not true, but she enjoys it's putting that out there. And then when people see what an ogre I look like and what she looks like, they assume that it's like, well, that's got to be true. But it is true that that but for her reaching out to that letter, I don't know if our paths would have ever crossed. You know, one of the reasons that I wanted to talk with both of you is because you both are known for your public service and for, you know, really trying to help people. And you have a partnership. And the partnership is really key to what both of you have been able to accomplish. And so, Giselle, I want to start with you first. How did you get involved in public service? And really, what I view in reading about everything you're doing, a really creative approach to, you know, service and empowerment of people. Thank you. I think my stems from gratitude. You know, I came to this country as a young immigrant. My family essentially lived in the shadows for almost 15 years. We were undocumented. And we found ourselves in this whole new world and kind of navigating our way around it. And I saw things that I knew weren't the best way for something to be done. And I was never in a position to be able to do something about it. So I collected these kind of pains and these stories and these experiences for when one day I was in a position to do something about it. And so I think it comes from I'm grateful that I get to live in this country and I get to do the work that I do. And that's what keeps me going. That really resonates with me. You know, John, your story is also fascinating to me. How did you originally get into public service? It's, it's your family that, that did. I was in year two of AmeriCorps, which oh, you know very well, you know, <laughs> the history there. Mm-hmm. Um, in 1995, I went to the Hill House, which is a, an organization in Pittsburgh's historic Hill District, which is the, the great black jazz. It's kind of like the, you know, the, the second Harlem, if you will, of, of America to uh, teach GED classes and set up computer labs there. And that was made possible by AmeriCorps. I was a 24-year-old, and I wanted to get into public service, but I wasn't sure how, but AmeriCorps made that possible. So, so thank you. 
Well, I think in the list of accomplishments that my husband's most proud of, AmeriCorps is way up at the top. So I will pass that on. We need more of that in America right now. I hope that uh, part of the change in our politics and our society is trying to intentionally create more and more opportunities for service, which then has the benefits that you just described. John, when you came to do that GED program, what was your transition into deciding to run for mayor in Braddock? How did that happen? Yeah, just to put that in context, Braddock had lost 90% of its population. It was as vibrant and robust as Silicon Valley is because Pittsburgh and the steel industry was that industry that was driving American innovation. Fast forward to when I showed up 20 years ago, you know, affiliated with AmeriCorps, we had lost 90% of the population and the community was around 80% black. And it was one of the poorest, is one of the poorest communities in, in Pennsylvania. So I w- started setting up programming to help young people get their GEDs, get their jobs, their driver's license. And then uh, after a, f- a couple of years, it was going beautifully and I was feeling really r- enriched. But uh, two of my students were killed with guns. And it it really hit me with a realization that it's great that I can get someone a GED or a job, but that's not much help if they're not around to to do that. Mm -hmm. So I I ran for mayor wanting to be the change I hope to impose or create in my community. And that would be that we don't lose anybody through gun violence. Mm -hmm. And that first race, the young people that I worked with, you know, my former students all registered to vote and went and knocked on door to door for me. And long story short, I won that first race by one vote. Oh my gosh, one vote. One vote. So I I have the ultimate every vote counts story because (laughs) I would never have been mayor, lieutenant governor, or, you know, having the esteemed privilege and honor to be talking to you this morning, but for that one vote back in 2005. Well, what I like though, is that you are willing to speak out and invite people to come into the conversation. Uh, you've been an outspoken advocate on everything from LGBTQ rights to immigration reform, obviously to marijuana legalization, one of uh, the subjects you've really uh, run with as lieutenant governor. But in following your career and just on that marijuana legalization issue, what you did was very much uh, in keeping with how I think of politics. You traveled the whole state, the whole Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. You went to you know, every corner engaging people. You had people who agreed with you, people who disagreed, and people who just wanted to know what the you know, debate was all about. Mm-hmm. And that led you then to be able to make a recommendation based on real conversations. How do we get back to that, John? How do we try to reinstate the sense of, um, you know, not only civility, um, but, you know, a real conversation about the direction of our country going forward. Wow, that, that, what, what a great question, because like I, it just brought me back to Pennsylvania has 67 counties and I insisted to go every single one of them. And mm-hmm. just to give you an idea of the diversity of Pennsylvania, like our, our smallest county has 5000 people in it. And it's hard to remember that we're all Pennsylvanians because mm-hmm. our life experiences could be so drastically different. But you just mentioned the word civility and and my gosh, like those meetings were all civil. It was such a great conversation, like going to the reddest communities, the reddest counties in Pennsylvania. Like it's it's nostalgic. But what's crazy is that wasn't even that long ago. And you know how much things have changed and how toxic things have have gotten. But I I also learned that people really want to talk and people want to be engaged. You really get to see a person's experience through his or her own eyes when you're in their own community. Absolutely. And social media has has weaponized cruelty and given it a velocity that is unprecedented, where if you're in a room and personal, it's a lot harder to do and say some of the things that get flown around on, online and never once, you know, in the reddest county. So your, your question really made me nostalgic back to a time where we could have a conversation. And I also discovered that around 70% of Pennsylvanians are for this. It's not a hard left kind of niche issue. It is a populist, like, let's just do it already mm-hmm. thing. You know, of course, more Democrats than Republicans, but a majority of Republicans too. But what has happened, you know, as has been well documented and as we have all experienced, 
the former president's campaign and presidency uh, emboldened uh, a lot of people to be more vocal uh, in expressing racist and xenophobic uh, and other very negative, hateful points of view. And that's something that your family has experienced firsthand. And Giselle, you had a particularly unfortunate experience at the grocery store this past fall. What happened there? So I, I do usually have the protection of state troopers with me um, because of my husband's role. And this time I just was running to the grocery store, which is just three minutes from my house. I just sometimes like to go by myself because it's you want to feel normal, right? And <laughs> right. the golden kiwis were on sale and they those are my favorite. And I ran to get some golden kiwis and I was in line to pay. And this woman passed and recognized me. You know, she stopped and it just began from there. She, you know, yelled some slurs. She said that I don't belong here. I'm a thief and I don't belong in this country. And I was paralyzed. I mean, I'm, I think I'm really good at standing up for someone else. But it's when mm. it's for me, I just kind of freeze and just start crying. And that's what I did. And <laughs> I paid quickly and I went off to my car and I as I was leaving she followed me to the car and continued again yelling slurs at me and it was a it was a pretty terrible uh horrible experience that many people face um in this country unfortunately um but I you know when it happens to you and it's so close that hate is so close to your face it was a lot to process hmm. wow I'm so sorry that happened how do you try to deal with that? How do you understand that? What can we all learn from that? So I cry a lot. <laughs> I think that's my first thing. But, you know, I try to understand that that woman, for example, she wasn't born that way. She mm -hmm. didn't come out of, you know, into this world hating me because I was born in a different country or spoke mm -hmm. a different language. So I have to understand that she was taught that. And mm -hmm. I, my hope is that she can be the one who breaks that cycle, right? We want mm -hmm. to continue to break cycles. I I thought of that incident thinking like, my gosh, did she have children? Does she have grandchildren? Is she teaching them this? So I ask that she um, receive support to be able to find a way out of this. I wanted her to see herself and say, I don't really like that person. You know, I don't want to be that person anymore. Um, and that she can be the one who breaks that cycle. We'll be right back. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic Gymnastics, Cain Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm preaching to somebody today who is waiting for God to give you your next step. And you don't know what it is yet. You need God to show you your next step. Because, God, I can't stay where I am like I am where it is. This isn't going to work. I, I have to move on, but I don't know where. A lot of time you'll use it as an excuse. Well, I don't know how. I don't know where. I don't know what. God, if you show me. God, if you tell me. God, no, 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 no. You know enough right now. And if you needed to know more, he would show you. Hey, this is Stephen Furtick. I want to invite you to listen to my podcast, Elevation with Stephen Furtick. I am here to help you for the battles that you face in life, for the times when you feel discouraged, for the times that you need guidance from God. I want to give you the truth of what he says about you to help you rise to your full potential. Listen to Elevation with Stephen Furtick every Sunday and Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, hi, I'm Rachel Zoe, and I'm back for another season of my podcast, Climbing in Heels. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as fully obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. My podcast, Climbing in Heels, is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season, we're taking things up a notch. I'll be talking to some incredible women across so many industries, from models and beauty industry stars to doctors, entrepreneurs, and TV personalities. Climbing in Heels is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. 
every week, listeners will be able to ask me any questions. I'm answering it all. My life is absolutely crazy with so much going on, and I'm so beyond excited to bring you along for the ride. Whether we're talking red carpet looks, current trends, or products I'm obsessed with, I'm here to be your fashion fairy godmother. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. New year, new name, new energy, but... Same old. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. But that's not all. We will also have special guests to add their thoughts on the topics, as well as break down different political issues with local activists in their community. If you like to be informed and to expand your thoughts, listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. I'm Hannah Storm, and my podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, digs deep into the history of professional basketball, along with my own as one of the first female sportscasters. Now let's get you up to speed on what else happened around the NBA today. We talked to all sorts of people I interacted with, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley, and recap iconic moments. Yes, he's got it. Here he comes. Ray rocked the baby to sleep and slammed up. As well as some of the wild stories behind the scenes. We were like, what? What are we in for? The scoreboard crashes before we even tip a game off. Today, the NBA is a global sports and entertainment giant. Players are multimillionaires and cultural icons. Iguodala to Curry, back to Iguodala, up for the layup. Oh, blocked by James. LeBron James. And these stories are about how we got here, both on and off the court. And what's next? Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storr on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. You know, one of the hard parts, though, about being in public life is your kids. And I remember when Chelsea was, you know, maybe old enough to understand the conversation we were having with her five or six, we were telling her that, you know, she would hear mean things said about her daddy and mommy. And, you know, she had to understand that that would happen. And she was so, I could just remember her little face and her eyes getting really big. Well, why would anybody do that? Why would anybody say anything mean? And cosine, yeah, yeah, we, we, yeah, we're 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 there with you, yeah. <laughs> and you, but you have to prepare your children, and I and I know that um, you guys have done that because I've read about how you talk to your kids and tell them that you know, sadly, this is part of the world, and when you're out in the public, as you both are, you know, that's going to happen. Do they understand it, do you think? They do. They really Mm -hmm. do. They've lived it for a long time. And I don't want to, you know, I want to shield as much as I can, but I also want them to know that this is the world. You know, I'm Mm -hmm. raising them not for us. We're raising them for this world so that they can be agents to combat the rest that's out there. And I remember the night of that incident, I came home and I was really upset and crying for a few hours. And we're trying to explain what had happened to the kids because I was alone and August, who's six, he's like, Mommy, you're so adorable. How could anybody say anything to you? Like, he was outraged. <laughs> well, he's a very perceptive child, is all I could say. <laughs> well, so now you two have launched a, a new adventure because, John, you've announced you're running for the Senate. Yeah. H- h- how did you make that decision? Well, I mean, I, I just always want to be in a position to serve. I mean, it started, yes. things in my life worked out. Like, you know, I was the product of a kind of an unplanned teenage pregnant Mm. romance. So my beginnings could have turned out one way or the other, but I was fortunate where I I ended up in a place where I'm able to, and I want to contribute because I I just wanted to make the world a better place and pay it forward. And that's the lane that made the most sense. And that really crystallized after we got into a place with our former president doing and saying things that we're beyond the pale of dismantling democracy. And I was so outraged that 
eight out of our nine Republican congressional delegation members who were on the same ballot saying, you know, <laughs> the voters love me, no fraud in my race, but man, Joe Biden, you rigged it for him. Mm-hmm. The, the fact that there are people willing to trade political capital and temporary popularity to damage this nation's democratic franchise appalled me at a level that I never could have imagined. And I said this in jest, but it's also true that if I am the next senator, I I promise to be 100% sedition free. (laughs) I love that. (laughs) And everyone knows I'm no fan of politics. I'm too sensitive. My heart can't handle it. Um, But for me, I think was you know, my family in Brazil, it's everyone's dream to come to America, always. Mm-hmm. You know, every conversation I have with them, it's like, I'll see you soon. It's this this long American dream. And when all this was happening and everything felt like it was falling apart, my family stopped saying that. They were like, mm-hmm. we're fine here. Mm-hmm. And um, that was a really sad moment because I love mm-hmm. this country so much. And I want them to continue to dream of, of being here. And I think that's what, um, you know, yeah. my, my support for him full game. John, I know that after you announced your Senate campaign, an incident that happened in Braddock when you were mayor back in 2013 got some renewed attention on social media particularly. Yep. So I just have to ask you, John, what happened? So in 2013, I was outside and experienced a really large and sharp uh, burst of gunfire. And there was an individual, you know, covered head to toe, couldn't tell what their race was, what their gender was, running from this corridor where there's been, you know, a lot of shootings over the years there. And uh, I made that split second decision. I called 911 and I got my family in safely. And I made the decision. This was a few weeks after Sandy Hook, as he, as the individual was heading towards our elementary school to intercept him. Didn't point the weapon against him. It was over in less than 30 seconds because mm-hmm. the police were coming from such a short area. And the allegation was is that it was somehow racially motivated when that just couldn't be further from the truth. What I can say, though, is, is that Braddock served as my, my jury after that, and they knew it had nothing to do with the race. They knew it had nothing to do with anything other than somebody rising up to intervene in a situation where there was undisputed gunfire. Multiple mm-hmm. residents you know, attested to that. And they reelected me by a greater than three to one margin four months mm-hmm. after this incident. Mm-hmm. And then to another term four years later, and then to lieutenant governor. And I've just said that my 20 years in Braddock, the most thing I'm most proud of is we stopped gun deaths in our community for five and a half years for the Good first for time you. ever. And it has to be said, profiling, you know, this history in the black community, it's a real thing. And, and I certainly understood that. But At no point in time was I ever aware of this individual's race or even gender based on how they were dressed and how far apart we were and how Mm -hmm. rapidly this all happened. Well, I want to bring this back to the two of you because I'm fascinated about partnership. And one of my stories that I love about you, Giselle, is I think it was a birthday and John asked you what you wanted and you said you wanted (laughs) a container. container. (laughs) And I'm not talking about like a little tiny container for a plant. I'm talking about a container that goes on a huge ship. Yeah. And so John just kind of went, okay. <laughs> I had just gotten a, a nice honorarium, uh, which I never kept any honorariums. Of course, they all <laughs> went to charity. And she's like, I need, I, I want to start this thing called the free store. And I'm like, oh, okay. So <laughs> we would always drive by this place that creates uh, container offices, like, you know, like out of like a legitimate ocean cargo shipping container. And the, the, the price was X and my honorarium was literally X. I was like, okay, sure, here you go. And then that was what, nine years ago? Nine years. Yeah, nine yeah. years ago. And that has become the free store. And she has created something that is as fine as anything that's ever been done to helping the really basic fundamental needs of the folks here. It was was 100% her. So the two of you kind of have educated each other about all sorts of things during your your partnership. Yes, mostly me educating him because... Yeah, I, I, I'm just I'm just the arm candy secretary. Clinton, you know, like, that's just 
<laughs> well, it's a great partnership. I want to thank you for, you know, one of the best memories with Grace. You know, we were waiting for your event and everything was running late because that's what happens in campaigns. And she was starving and grumpy because that's who she is. <laughs> and we see you coming. And I said, look, Grace, there she is. And she said, great, but now I'm starving. <laughs> And you got a big bag of chips from your husband. <laughs> and I have the best picture of her just. So she, to her, you are the one who fed her that day. And oh, she just worships gosh. you. That's a great metaphor because, you know, that that's how I think about public service. You know, it, it is a process of, of meeting and, yes, feeding all of the needs that are out there. So I just wish the both of you, you, you know, the very best in your you know, public and uh, professional and personal pursuits all together. Thank you for talking to me today. The Pennsylvania Senate election in 2022 is one of the most important contests in the country upcoming. So if you're paying close attention, as I hope you are, please come back next week when I talk to another terrific Democrat in the race, Malcolm Kenyatta. You know, partners are great, but what if you don't have one? My next guest set out to answer that question for one very specific demographic, college students stuck at home during the pandemic. Ileana Valdez is a senior majoring in computer science at Yale University. Her brother, Jorge, graduated from college a few years ago and now works as a software developer. This fall, they found themselves sheltering in place. So along with a friend, they came up with the idea for a new dating site called OKZoomer and worked together to build it. I think it's safe to say it's been a resounding success. Hi, Ileana and Jorge. Welcome to the show today. Hi, <laughs> thanks for having us. Well, I was so intrigued by OKZoomer okay, and I want to learn all about that. But first, a little bit about the two of you, your brother and sister. I'd love to learn more about where your interest in programming came from. So I love to tell people that it started in the womb because my mom was at college <laughs> studying for computer science when she was pregnant with me. And then after that, like my big brother did it. So of course, like <laughs> I want to be like him. <laughs> well, that's a pretty good uh, combination. Uh, but the two of you working together have created something new. It's called OK Zoomer, a great name. What inspired you to do this? Eliana, how, how did you even think about it? So when we got sent home, um, a lot of my friends and I were on Facebook because that's all we had to do at home um, mm -hmm. in quarantine. And a lot of people were posting really funny memes about not being able to have a love life anymore and not being able to find their partner before they graduate. Um, so I remember <laughs> we were like, what if we solve that problem? What if we help people find that partner before they graduate Yale or they graduate whatever university it is that they're going to? And my brother was like so quick to be on board and behind the mission. I love that, Jorge. So here you're little sister, comes home from school and she says, you know, this is really bad because my friends and I are feeling really isolated. She comes to me with this Google form of people who are expressing their desire to find their match, right? And it's got over 10,000 signups on it. And she's like, I'm not sure how I'm going to get these people their perfect match in one night. And I'm like, OK, we can solve this together. Let's let's figure it out. <laughs> Well, you did uh, a lot of the programming behind OKZoomer, okay Jorge. What makes it different from other dating apps? Uh, we try to not provide any means of superficial first impression. So there's no pictures on the site. Really, the only thing we're doing is giving you basic demographic information and leaving it on you to reach out to that person. Um, and another thing that's different is that we only give you a match every Friday. You know, it's not like Tinder where you're getting an endless stream of people that you might be interested in. So really, it's focusing on like making core personal relationships that are built to withstand. And Ileana, you're not just making potential romantic matches, as I understand it. You're helping your fellow college students replicate the kind of random encounters they might have if they were, you know, in the dining hall or the library or walking out of a class so that they could have a more normal life right now. 
Yeah, that was a big driving force behind it. I'm also a freshman counselor and a lot of our first years like have not been able to meet other people. Um, So this is definitely like something we want to apply it to. We want to make sure that, you know, students who are completely remote still get that experience of networking because that's a huge, important part of being at college. (laughs) Ileana, why do you think OKZoomer has struck such a chord and, and how many people have actually ended up using it so far? I think a huge part of why it struck such a chord is because our current apps like Tinder and stuff like that are very driven on hookups and like short term interactions, which did not survive the pandemic because we were gone Mm -hmm. and separated from each other for eight months. And so people realized, wow, maybe there needs to be a different method for me to build these like meaningful conversations before I start a relationship with someone to make sure that it's going to last. So that's been a huge like part of why I think it worked. And we've had over 20,000 people use it so far. And that number keeps growing. Have you gotten any testimonials that show that you're doing the right thing? You're, you're really helping people during such a difficult time? Yeah. So one of my best friends actually is currently in rural Wyoming. In rural Wyoming, his Tinder options are like zero to nine. Um, so <laughs> it's definitely been a huge factor for people that they still want to date people they have things in common with. So that means they still want to date people at their respective universities. But the dating apps that are out there just aren't cutting it anymore, especially in our new globalized community that we have. It's just we know that we're going in the right direction just because we've been able to serve a lot of people who haven't been served by the current dating apps anymore. Okay, before we close, I have to ask, have either of you gone on any OK Zoomer dates? I've gone on an OK Zoomer friend date, and it was awesome. Met a nice person from Princeton, um, and we like <laughs> check in every now and then. How about you, Jorge? Unfortunately, I'm out of the age demographic at this point. Well, <laughs> I'm sort of hoping that as you grow and develop this new site, that you expand it for ages because it's not only college kids who need to have, you know, positive connections without the pressure of uh, appearance being front and center and all the ideas of uh, dating and the pressures that that brings. So I'll put in a plug for, you know, expanding OK Zoomer. I want to thank both Ileana and Jorge and really congratulate you on making such good use of the time you had during COVID to <laughs> create something that can bring people together in, in some really good and positive ways. Thank you both very much. Thank you. To check out OKZoomer, go to zoomer.love. Speaking of partners, we could not make this podcast without you, our listeners. And I love hearing your stories and ideas for upcoming shows. Recently, after our episode on doing hard things, I asked you to share some of the hard things you've had to do, and boy, I got so many wonderful responses. Anna wrote to me about how hard her parents have been working as they try to keep their small business and employees afloat during this pandemic. Sharon and so many others wrote in about dealing with loss and grief, the death of a loved one, the difficulty conceiving, caring for aging parents, and so much more. Thank you to everyone who has written in. And on a related note, for a future episode, I'll be answering questions from listeners. So if you have a question about the podcast, about public service, about the skills that I have or haven't mastered during this pandemic, for example, leave us a message at 914-458-1441. Again, that's 914-458-1441. We just ask that you try to keep it to, you know, a minute or so. Or if you prefer, you can email us at youandmebothpod at gmail.com. I really look forward to hearing from you. You and Me Both is brought to you by iHeartRadio. We're produced by Julie Subrin, Kathleen Russo, and Lauren Peterson, with help from Huma Abedin, Nikki Etour, Oscar Flores, Lindsay Hoffman, Brianna Johnson, Nick Merrill, Rob Russo, and Lona Valmoro. 
Our engineer is Zach McNeese, and the original music is by Forrest Gray. If you like You and Me Both, please help spread the word. Tell your friends about it, post about it on social media, and make sure to hit the subscribe button so you never miss an episode. You can do that on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening, and see you next week. The Elevation with Stephen Furtick podcast was created with you in mind. This is a podcast for those feeling discouraged or needing guidance from God. Together in this podcast, we'll dive deep into scripture, uncover the powerful truths that will help you rise above your limitations and embrace your full potential. We're here to equip you with the tools you need to conquer life's challenges. Listen to Elevation with Stephen Furtick every Sunday and Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying... A a podcast. podcast. Welcome to Locatora Radio Season 9. Love Love at at First first listen. Listen. This season... We're falling in love with podcasting all over again. With new segments, correspondence, and a new sound. Listen to Locatora Radio as part of the Michael Dura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I used to have so many men. How this beguiling woman in her 50s She looked like a million bucks Scams a bunch of famous athletes out of untold fortunes Nearly 10 million dollars was all gone It's just unbelievable Hide your money in your old rich man Because <laughs> she is on the prowl Listen to Queen of the Con, Season 5, The Athlete Whisperer On the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. That's right.